Welcome back, everybody, to the lab where we dig in and dissect to all sorts of topics. Uh, I got Kate Holiday here with me. My name is Ryan Rivers, and that's just a made-up name from uh, our time back in Alaska when we used to be on the radio. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we didn't want to use our real names. Um, that's guess, the fun part of being in radio. Yeah, you can just change your identity or whatever. So that's what we yep. uh, that's what we've been doing for a few years now. We are on episode what ninety? Yeah, episode ninety. Today. Crazy. Um, it is. It is crazy. Mm-hmm. We missed last week, but we're here today. Yeah. We're going to push through it. <laughs> um, if Try you, to. If you hear the dogs in the background, uh, Coop, our pit bull, had some surgery mm-hmm. last week. Um, so he's, I, th- I think he deserves a pass. Yeah. And Ray, of course, the other dog, thinks that uh, if Coop can be obnoxious, he's going to be obnoxious. So you may just have to deal with some canine noise today, <laughs> which might brighten which might brighten your day. Maybe. we got to keep like an eye on him anyways. Action? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So last week we talked about near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. To my surprise, we got zero fan mail, which yeah. I take that as a good sign. Nobody's had a near-death experience. Right. I've had a couple, like my dad reached out with some of his and a friend that listens to the show. But yeah. Um, it was kind of like along the lines of things that we had covered mm. anyways, like similar instances. My dad, a lot of his was as a kid because my grandpa made him do stupid stuff, but, oh, well. you know, he lived to tell about it. Yeah, so. I love grandparents. Yeah. You know. Keywords on near death. It was his grand- his grandfather or His your dad, my his, grandpa. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Got it, got it. All right. So um, this week we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, it's somebody that probably had a near-death experience depending on – how you look at it. Maybe he was an expert. Maybe he was completely uh, wet behind the ears and had no idea what he's doing. Um, we're going to talk about D.B. Cooper mm-hmm. and his mysterious disappearance. Yeah. Which to this day remains the only uh, hijacking in the United States that has gone unsolved by the FBI. Yeah. Airplane hijacking. Right. Yeah. Not like a... Like a, a boat, a car. A train hijacking. Yeah. Could be. Or a hacking yeah. A high hacking. High hacking. Is that a word? I don't uh, know. It could be. Yeah. So the the part about this is um, it's an unsolved mystery to this day. Nobody yes. knows. Somebody or, knows. At least one person. Well, he knows. Whether he's alive or not, we'll mm-hmm. find out. Yep. Maybe. Um, so just to get the backstory for those that don't know who D.B. Cooper is. <clears throat> Which I find it hard to believe if you at least haven't heard of him. You may not be familiar with the entire story. I wasn't. I didn't know anything about this until you told me. Really? And then I feel like Is after that recently? You, it wasn't that long ago because I feel like we did mention him in a show like months and months ago, but mm-hmm. it was like very quick. We never like dove into the mystery of it all. Uh, um, but I feel like after you told me about it, I heard more about it for some reason. So now that I know the plot and everything, I've kind of formulated my own thoughts on what happened, so. Your own hypothesis? Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's dig into this thing. Let's do it. Um, Most likely going to be a two-parter. Yeah, there's a lot to cover with these. Yeah, and a lot that uh, I wish we could cover, but we just just don't know. (laughs) Um, All right, so the story starts on November 24th, 1971. Okay. So you're in the early 70s, you know, everybody's smoking. Joking. Um, yeah, wearing uh, probably still wearing suits and ties at this point. Think of those NASA nerds that you see always dressed up like they're going to a job interview, even mm-hmm. though they have a high-paying job anyway. Yeah, slacks, nice shoes. Right. Um, so this guy, um, his name's Dan Cooper, is what he called himself. Mm-hmm. So he went to the air. Uh, he went to the Portland Airport uh, Northwest Airlines counter and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle. Okay. The day of the flight. 
Interesting. Right. Most of the times I like shop months ahead trying to get a good price. Yeah, of course, because you know the price is going to go up. Yeah, so, so this guy shows up and he buys a one-way ticket to Seattle on Northwest Airlines Flight 305. Um, the only thing that even has his name attached to it is this airline ticket where he signed, hmm. where it says, put your name here. Yeah, because things were different back then when you buy oh, tickets. Yeah. There was no like major security check, IDs, proof of who you are, all that crap. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and he writes Dan Cooper on his ticket, and he has a 2.50 departure time, 2.50 p.m. Okay. And the plane that he decided to fly on, some people think that he purp- purp- uh, purposely sought this plane out. Mm-hmm. Could have been a coincidence. We'll find out later about that. <laughs> it's a Boeing 727. I have no idea what that is. All right. So picture um, like a smaller airliner, but it's got the engines mounted on the back, you know, like up or on the tail. Okay. And unique to this aircraft is it's got a, a staircase that comes out the back of the plane. So, like, when the plane's coming in to land, and you know, like, it flares, it lifts its nose up. Mm-hmm. If those stairs were deployed, they would hit. Okay. That's where it comes out. It's kind of like a military aircraft that the hatch drops in the back, and they can right. drop, like, tanks out of it. Right. You're okay. already thinking ahead. I like it. Okay. Anyway, he gets on this plane. Uh, takeoff is uneventful. Um, from what I read, it was, like, three quarters full. Um, it was right around Thanksgiving. It may have been on Thanksgiving Day. I didn't take a calendar and look back to 1971, but it's somewhere right around there. It's on my sister's birthday. There you go. Yeah. Happy birthday. She was not born yet, but uh, same thing. So uh, they're en route to Seattle, right? And he gives this note to a flight attendant. Was it a love letter? She thought it was, so She's she like, ignored oh. it. She oh. said thank you, and she put it in her pocket. Oh, she probably, I, I probably would have thrown it away. He, <laughs> she thought that he was flirting. <laughs> oh. And then he says, Miss, I think you want to read that. So, like, ew, perv. Right? So she pulls <laughs> it so out. Persistent? And um, it says that he has a bomb and he has some demands. Definitely this, not a love note. Right? Um, so anyway, he invites her to come sit down next to him. Oh, great. So so check this out. When he bought this t- uh, his ticket, I don't know if they had seating assignments back then. Probably not. He, he, he chose to sit in the middle seat. What a weirdo. Who does that? Not me. Nobody's on his left. Nobody's on his right. Nope. No yeah. aisle, no window. He chooses to sit in the middle. I, I would feel like if I was a flight attendant and somebody purposely sat in the middle, I mean, I guess if there's nobody else in your row, it's not a big deal. But at the same time, I'd be like, you're weird. In the back of the plane. That would be sketchy to me. I feel like that would be like a red flag. And he's <laughs> wearing he's wearing sunglasses. Flag on the plane. Inside. Yeah. Inside. Oh. Anyway. Wow. So he says that he has a bomb. Okay. And she says, let me see it. Oh, she's brave. You know? So he, girl. he grabs this little briefcase and he cracks it open. And inside what she described was eight red sticks that looked like dynamite. Okay. Covered with wires. Wires all over the place. You got to cut the right wire. <laughs> yep. So he closes his briefcase and says, Booyah. You believe me? <laughs> anyway. So at this I, point. I would. Would yeah. you buy that? I'd, oh, yeah. I'd be yeah. like, oh, Okay. Especially back then where there was no security. Right. It um, wouldn't be that hard to get that kind of stuff on a plane. No. So she gets on the phone, radios the captain up front, and she's like, yo, uh, we got this situation, and... Just a little one. Get ready. Huh. Anyway, they, uh, the captain asks him, like, what's his demands? He's going to relay it and all this stuff. He doesn't want anybody to blow up. And uh, DB, DB, okay, so the way it became DB was when this story was release, released to the press, mm-hmm. one of the reporters uh, mistakenly wrote down DB instead of Dan. 
or they couldn't read this person's writing and it came across as DB and the headlines ran with it. Oh, weird. I thought that was like his middle name. No, nah, so it was just DB Cooper hijacked a plane and then ever since then it stuck. That's so weird because we don't know exactly who he was and now he has like a fake name, but yeah. without even trying. So it kind of worked out in his favor. But anyways. Yeah. Um, so, so here's where it starts to get like a little weird right off the bat. He demands $200,000 in cash in a duffel bag. Okay. Which is equivalent to $1.2 million today. Random. On the note that he wrote, though, to the stewardess, flight attendant, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. he says he wants $200,000 in, and I quote, negotiable U.S. currency. What does that mean? So that's the thing. Some people think maybe he was a foreigner. Some people think maybe he was Canadian. Negotiable. Like he could take it back to his home port, Right, his home country, and it would pass. Hmm. So he wanted... $200,000 in negotiable currency. I feel like that's left open to interpretation. Like on who what that who could says mean. that in a, in a bomb threat? I would just say, he give me being, the money. He was being very specific. Right, in a duffel bag, not like a backpack, a briefcase. Right. Okay. And in addition to that, he wants four parachutes. Did he bring friends? And he wants a fuel truck ready on the ramp at the Seattle airport so as soon as he touches down, they can refuel this plane. Wasn't he trying to go to Seattle? He bought the ticket to go to Seattle. Okay. So, here we go. You ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, the captain calls down to the tower, whoever he's talking to, and he's like, yo, we got the situation. Uh, FBI immediately goes into uh, into their protocol. So, I didn't know this, but actually, like, around the country, banks have stockpiles of cash that are pre-marked with designated serial numbers mm-hmm. just for this sort of incident. When somebody takes hostages and they're like, I want a million dollars, banks have this money set aside with the serial numbers already, like, earmarked for, like, you walk into the safe, oh, what's over here on the right? That's all hijacking money. Hijacking and hostage money. Yeah, so ain't that weird? So, like, the FBI was on top of it. Like, any bank has that? I don't know if it's any bank, but there's certain banks that do. And I guess it's, like, within the FBI field office areas or whatever. That's weird. So they can run and grab it and take it with them. I did not know that. So um, some local bank in downtown Seattle gives the feds 200000 Like, how... I want, there has to be, like, a secret word, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you could just call, like... Exposure. <laughs> you could just call, like, <laughs> Bank of America and be like, hey, this is the FBI. I need that $300,000 you have set aside for, for an emergency. Oh, is there a hostage situation? Yeah. Yeah, there is. I'm coming to pick it up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know? Yeah, there's got to be some understanding. Some type of protocol. Yeah. Um, I'm anyway. sure if they were in an area where they didn't have a bank with that money set aside, if they a bank had that check. much, they would just pay them back, obviously, but... Um, so the FBI calls a, uh, local skydiving school and says, we need, (laughs) we need four parachutes. Okay. So the, uh, local skydiving guy, you gotta think like, how did they get a hold of these people if it was Thanksgiving? FBI will find you. Yeah. I mean, they have capabilities, but still. sketchy. I wonder how much they told them though. Calling a skydiving school if I was. They did tell them a certain amount and you'll see why here in just a second. I would have been like, what? So the, uh, airplane enters a holding pattern over Seattle while the FBI is working on all this crap. At 5.45 p.m., the plane lands in Seattle, and D.B. Cooper agrees to swap the passengers for his demands. And I was just thinking of this. What are the passengers doing the whole time? Like, they Do didn't they know, know what's going on? No, they did not. So the captain didn't come over and explain why he was doing like random figure eights in the sky wasting time? I'm sure he said something like, I know you and I would be like, up. what are we doing? Yeah. Well, I would today with social question. media, it would... Be blowing up. The captain would probably tweet about it. Like, you remember those phones? OMG on just got hijacked. FML or something. FML. You know, what, you know what I mean? Posting videos and pictures of him. Right. Yeah, he would have never gotten away with it these days. Anyways, um, <laughs> sorry. Um. So. Oh boy. 
5.45 p.m. it lands, mm-hmm. and the FBI shows up. D.B. Cooper says, no funny business. Give me my money, and I'll give you your passengers. So, so the thing with this, though, is he must he must have had, like, the flight attendants do his dirty work because they were the only ones, I think, that could, like, identify him or something. It's not like the whole FBI group that was on the tarmac saw this guy, from my understanding. Correct. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, <laughs> when they were coming into land, he told the flight attendants, pull down all the window shades mm. in case there's any snipers on the tarmac. Oh. They can't see inside the plane. Smart man. Right. Yeah. This is well thought through. Um, so anyway, some passengers get out. He lets that one flight attendant go, grab the crap, bring it back in. Once he sees everything, he lets the rest of the passengers go. He keeps the f- two flight attendants, I believe, and the two crew, the two pilots. Hmm. So there's a slight delay in refueling the aircraft. Uh-oh. He's starting to get a little antsy. The captain's trying to calm him down, and he asks him, like, uh, where do you want to go? And D.B. Cooper says, we're going to go to Mexico City. Okay. And he was like, I. Um, <laughs> Random. So okay. then he starts asking, like, just making conversation with his hijacker. Like, is there any particular way you want to go? Blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, let's just get this show on the road. So the captain decides that he's going to fly a predetermined airway that exists. Okay. Which becomes important later. All right. I was so going to say, what does that mean? There's, uh, It's like in their flight computer. It's like a designated air route that the airlines use all the time. Oh, okay. So like if you like it's commonly known. Right. Like way. so like we're sitting out here on our patio and we always see the planes going over our house for Boston and they always seem to be in the exact same spot in the sky just chasing each other. Mm-hmm. That's an airway that they're taking into Boston. Okay. Um So anyway, they get rolling as they take off. Um they depart at 7:36 p.m. Mhm. And uh DB Cooper gets on the little phone and he talks to the uh, flight crew and he tells them we're going to go to Mexico City. You're going to keep your landing gear down. Your flap set at 15 degrees. Why would he know that? And you're going to stay below 10,000 feet. You're going to turn the lights off, and I want you to deploy the back staircase. So you knowing a lot about flight stuff, what would you make of that if you heard that as a pilot? That this guy has either served as a flight crew somewhere, or he is a pilot himself. Yeah, because that's very specific. Like, I wouldn't... I wouldn't care about the flaps we're doing or, like, what height we're at. I'd just be thinking about my money and how I was going to get away with it. Yeah. Because I know nothing about that stuff. But he's very specific. He tells the captain, stay below 10,000 feet. Right. You're not going to pressurize the cabin. Those back stairs are going to be down. Your lights are going to be off. Flaps at 15, gear down, and you're not going to exceed 115 miles per hour. Gear down. That's weird. Yeah, so the captain tells him, we can't make it to Mexico City. With all that going on. With all that going on, we don't have enough fuel. Mm-hmm. So, um... He's like, I don't care, bro. I'm not going there. Yeah, so D.B. Cooper <laughs> says, uh, we can either refuel, and he named, like, three different places. I think one was, like, Phoenix, one was, uh, maybe Sacramento, and something else. I don't know. Anyway, they okay. ended up agreeing to go to Reno. Okay. So they're going to fly to Reno, Nevada, right? Right. Um, so they get in the air, and the captain sets the flight up this way. Blah, blah, blah. How does he know that the flaps are only at 15%? I don't know, but at the same time, <laughs> if I'm the one holding the bomb, I would just assume the captain's doing what I'm telling him to do. True. Trust but verify. Yeah. Un, uh, how do you say that word? Un, unbeknownst? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Un, unbeknownst. Like you don't know any better? Yeah, I'm just trying to make it sound like I'm saying it uh, casually. Eloquently? Yeah. So, uh, unbeknownst to, uh, did that sound legit? Yes. To Cooper. Yep. The feds have uh, scrambled some fighter jets to escort this plane. 
Okay. One stays below, one stays above, and there's a third that uh, ended up showing up with not enough fuel, and he had to turn around like as soon as he caught up to him. Wow, what a rookie. Yeah, right? <laughs> How uh, do you do that? Incredible. Incredible stuff. So uh, they're watching this plane, and they are um, flying towards Portland, Oregon, headed down to Reno. Okay. And what happens is at 8.05 p.m., that's the last contact with Cooper from the crew over the phone. What time? 8.05 p.m. Okay. So they've been in the air for roughly 30... Yeah, it's not that long. Maybe 29, 30 minutes. Um, so the uh, flight crew asked Cooper if he needs any help back there doing whatever he's doing. And he says, um, I'm good. Don't worry about me. Get back in the cockpit. So the flight attendant has the audacity to crack the door and watch. This is the ballsy one that asked her, asked him yeah, to like, show her the bomb. Show me your, show me your stuff. Dang. So anyway, she's watching and he's putting this parachute on, and he is uh, staring out the back ramp, and then he's kind of looking around. She doesn't want to get seen. She closes the door, and then shortly after 8:05, the uh, flight crew describe what they hear, what they feel as uh, like a little. Um, like a jolt in the airplane, a little oscillation, if you will, a vibration. Okay. And they think that's him walking down the stairs and jumping off. Hmm. They think it is. They don't know. The fighter jets never saw him jump. It was too dark. Mm -hmm. They're flying through broken clouds. It was kind of misting up there. It was really foggy. Hmm. But one was underneath him, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but not like right underneath him. Yeah. Okay. Um, So they're on the Victor 23 airway. And what they did was when they felt that vibration, the captain and the, or the crew up there, they realized that they should mark that spot and help the low, uh, feds like mark that as like the jump site. That's smart. So they marked that site. Um, it's just north of Portland, Oregon. And below is a bunch of dense forest, mountains, and fog. Okay. No traces of Cooper have ever been found. How's that possible, though? Did he jump there? Or did the crew think he jumped there? But, I mean, I wonder what the time elapsed was when they felt that and they thought he jumped and when they opened the door and realized, hey, this fool jumped. When they landed in Reno. Oh, they didn't check since then. They didn't check. They landed how... in Reno, pulled up to the tarmac where all the feds were. They cracked the door. Like, crap, is that guy still back there? Places empty. So, flying from Seattle to Reno, how long of a flight is that? A couple hours? Uh, Yeah, actually, um... I don't know if I wrote down what time they landed, but I think it was like two or three hours after that. Yeah, that makes sense. So, literally, that flight attendant was watching him, and then she never got the guts to open the door again? Apparently not. Maybe uh, the captain said, don't do that. Yeah, don't be an idiot. Um, but, I mean, what else could that have been? Just a wind gust or something? Who knows? I mean, if the staircase is down, something grabbed it. Haven't you felt bumps before flying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It could you have know. been anything. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. The FBI launches the biggest man search in history up to that point, from what I understand. Um, they watch for the serial numbers on the bills. To be used to buy something? Yep. They okay. even they even release the numbers with a reward. Like, if you find a $20 bill with this serial number, you win $10,000. Like, trying to entice the public. Do you know how many people pay with 20s and, like, every single store having to check those serial numbers? And for $200,000, like, yeah. that's a lot of numbers to go through. So I'm sure it was it in sequential order, but still. Money matching, it did turn up. It did? In 1980. So that was nine years after? Yeah, almost a decade later. Good grief. A little boy on the Columbia River is camping with his dad, and he finds 
a bundle about $5,800 worth of money matching D.B. Cooper's serial numbers Hmm. buried on the riverbank where they're camping. Okay? On what river? The Columbia River. So, like, in... Just north of Portland. Okay, I was going to say, so it is up there. 16 miles from the original site that they thought he jumped. Okay. I mean, that could be feasible. (sighs) Well, it can't. That's the problem. It can't? It can't be feasible. Because the part of the river that it was found didn't even exist until they dredged it in 1974 and brought that sand in. But couldn't it have gotten carried from a different part of the river there? They tried that, and the problem with that is the river flows in the wrong direction. I was just thinking that. I was like, if it does flow in the opposite direction, that doesn't make sense. So the spot of land where this money was bare or was ended up mm-hmm. didn't even exist until like three years after he jumped. And, to add to this, and... The rubber bands were still intact on the money. Which rubber bands, if you've ever touched an old one, they just crumble. They reached out to the manufacturer of this rubber band, and the FBI oh, ran gosh. forensics on it and put it in the same elements, and each one disintegrated within a year. So that means that he, or somebody who found him and never like turned in, oh, I found this guy dead, whatever, took all his money, stashed it there recently before that kid found it. That's the only explanation. Yeah, because no joke, like, I've touched plenty of old rubber bands. They don't last if they're exposed to elements, like you were saying, and they literally just fall apart. So if those are the original bands from the bank, they had to have been stored somewhere, like, cool, dry, and then someone stashed it there. But who? It had to have been intentionally buried at that spot. Right. Is what everybody's, that's the conclusion, like, the feds are coming to, other researchers are coming to. But $5,800, and that... Is that the only money that's ever turned up? Yes. So why would the person, whether it was D.B. Cooper or somebody else who found his money, stash $5,800, which is a very, I mean, he's been very specific the whole time, but that's a very specific amount of money, and that's it. Maybe to throw people off his case? Maybe. Because what if, I'm just, I'm going to jump around a little bit. What if he didn't actually jump out into the harsh conditions that everybody's looking for him in? Mm-hmm. What if he didn't jump out until they were like in Nevada the where desert. it's the desert? And then he jumps out. Makes a getaway, and then a few years later, he's like, all right, coast is clear. Mm-hmm. And he goes and just, I'm going to go camping on the Columbia, and he buries some money, hoping somebody will find it. And then, and then they're going to be like, oh, we were in the right area. And then he's living the high life somewhere. Well, for how meticulous he's been this whole time, that would not surprise me. Right? And I feel like being out in the open desert is a lot different than jumping into a bunch of trees and fog. And you have a much better survival rate. Yeah, because he was wearing, like, uh, loafers and a business suit. Mm-hmm. Okay, but still, go back to the story. Riddle me this. Hmm. What are the other three parachutes for? Because there's four crew members, so was he only planning on, like, hey, if you guys run out of fuel and can't make it to Mexico City or whatever, or Reno, three of you can make it, but... No. Okay. The FBI believes that he did this to convince them he was going to take hostages. Oh, so they would do, take him serious? Not to do any funny business. Okay, but three. I mean, he, he, was, he knew there was four. So check it out. I don't get it. Excellent question. So the parachutes that were provided to him mm-hmm. was one old military chute that they used, mm-hmm. the type that opens up as a dome, and okay. you just kind of fall down willy-nilly. You can't steer it. Right. The other two were new parachutes that you can steer, like, like the, the elliptical ones. The fourth chute was a dummy chute. Meaning... It was fake. What? Did he know that? Apparently he did. I was going to say, because he knew not to put that one on. But he took it with him. What? 
He left the two good elliptical shoots. He opened one, tried to stash the money into it, they mm-hmm. found out. He couldn't get it to work. He threw it aside, threw the other new one aside. He put on the old army chute, and then he used the dummy chute bag to stuff the cash in. So out of a newer version that's easier to maneuver and you have more control over, he chose an old school parachute. Is it because... He had experience? He had experience. Was he in the military before? I mean, sounds to me like he was, because he has a lot of knowledge about planes, and especially that kind with the drop hatch in the back, because... The only plane I've ever been on like that has been a military aircraft. Yeah. And to have experience with that and feel comfortable taking such a big risk, whether you're in the desert or a bunch of trees and fog, using an old school parachute. And leaving two that, like me, never having parachuted before, one, I wouldn't even know how to put it on, but two, I'd want the best and most recent, like, technology. Unless you were familiar with this one because you jumped a thousand times or whatever it may have been right and there's other reasons to believe that that's the case Hmm. and we're going to get into that in part two yeah could he be part of something say the cia Hmm. could he just be a guy that lucked out and made it on his own or did he uh plummet to his death and he was never found yeah no i i don't know we're gonna we're gonna dig into uh this topic a little bit more yeah because i got a lot of questions still we're gonna answer and uh Two, I was going to throw in some tidbits about people that have turned up over time, whether Mm. it was self-referral, essentially, saying, hey, that's me, I'm D.B. Cooper, or people that knew these people and say, yeah, I think that's him. I think we're going to get into that next time, too. Perfect. Theweeklylab at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts. Um, If you're listening on shortwave, send us a uh, reception report. We'll get you a QSL card in the mail. And we're going to jump back into the mystery of D.B. Cooper on our next episode.